Thank you for joining our Transform 365 podcast, a discipleship and teaching ministry of SWCC. We pray this teaching helps you to grow in your journey with Christ. We have some great resources available for you on transform365.com webpage. Feel free to download discipleship materials, small group teaching, as well as peruse our training workshops. Also take time to visit www.swcc.org for videos, teaching, and more. We thank you for listening and your support, and we would love to hear from you. So use our contact page and drop us a line. Now for our podcast teaching. Well, hello and welcome to the Transform 365 podcast. I'm Pastor Cody Wallace. And I'm joined here by my co-host and I'm dear friend, Pastor John. Today, we're blessed to have Dr. Daryl Bach with us. Dr. Bach has a PhD from Aberdeen, a THM from DTS, of which he also serves as the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies. He's written over 40 books, many articles for journals and various magazines. He serves as a contributor and I believe a main editor for Christianity Today, is it? Well, I'm, I, I best the best way to describe it is I collaborate with them on some things. There we go. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's a husband to his helpmate, Sally, and has three children and grandchildren. Uh, Dr. Bach, welcome. Uh, it's great to be with you, Cody and John, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yes, we are as well. Thank you again. Uh, Dr. Buck, um, I do want to say something. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a Liberty guy. Um, and, uh, we have been blessed, uh, because you, um, you write quite a bit <laughs> and, uh, in the early 2010s and early two thousands, uh, we used a few of your books, uh, that you've contributed to and written, which is the uh, gospel according to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah there you go. Three. And uh, in the doctorate program, we did uh, Foundations of Spiritual Formations that you hmm. and uh, Dr. Pettit wrote um, uh, chapters on together. And so even though you're local uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth area at DTS, your influence of students uh, in other schools is far-reaching. And so I appreciate that of you. Well, thank you. Um Dr. Bach. I hope I didn't do too much damage. <laughs> <laughs> you might do some damage with this book here, Progressive Dispensation. Yeah, right yeah. Well, you know, you got to do it somewhere. Yes, sir. Well, Dr. Bach, um, you're viewed as being part of uh, the forefront of dis dispensationalism or uh, progressive dispensational teaching today. Um, and both camps look at the Bible as a whole. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and considering the history, context, and content. Um, and I just want to start off with kind of a, an easy one here. Um, why do you feel it's important to view scripture in this way as a whole, using the grammatical, historical, and um, cohesive or continuity view? Well, I, I think it's important because uh, it makes it's important to make sense out of the Bible. Yeah. Um, I mean, it. it uh, you know, it, it's it's a lot of material. Uh, it's 66 books crossing several centuries and finding coherence in what's going on in the scripture can be a challenge. And so our uh, our hope is, is that by reading the Bible with an awareness of both the dispensations and the covenants mm -hmm. uh, will help people to make sense out of the core narrative storyline that's running through the Bible 
that actually is the story of our salvation and is biblical salvation history, both in terms of what has already been done, what's happening now, and also what is to come. So all of that is important. And so it's worth um, keeping your eye on the prop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Important to study it as a whole, for sure. You know, in, in layman terms, uh, Dr. Bach, how would you, you know, for those who are listening to our this podcast, like how would you define dis- dispensationalism? Dispensationalism is a term that comes from a Greek word that simply means administrative arrangement. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason it's called dispensationalism is because the first major translation of the Bible went through went from Greek to Latin. And this Greek word, akronomia, became the word dispensatio in Latin. So that's where you get the word dispensation from. But a dispensation is an administrative arrangement. So I tell people, if you want to keep it simple, that the way in which God has managed his salvation and and the structures that he has worked with majorly can be reduced basically to three. The people of Israel and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The church, which is Christ has come, but he's not physically, visibly present with us now. And then the millennium when he returns and will be physically present with his people. Those are three different administrative relationships as to how God is proclaiming and managing his salvation. And that's basically what dispensationalism is concerned with, uh, how, how, what those administrative arrangements are and what they mean in terms of promise and fulfillment. I heard you say that grace, because, um, you know, the old classical revised, they like to use the word grace when it comes to the church, but there was grace in the Old Testament, too. So you don't like I heard you say you don't like using that word grace when it comes to well, the, 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 I, of the church. I, what I want to do is compare life structures as I move across the model mm-hmm. of describing what's going on in the Bible. So when I go law, grace, millennium, I'm doing I'm doing a switch. Mm-hmm. And so what I would rather do is to say Israel, church, and millennium. Now you're dealing with the actual structures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I also think the distinctions between them becomes clear to somebody. So mm-hmm. I think it's a cleaner, clearer category. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Uh, one of the teachings of Jesus to his disciples is of the kingdom. And uh, he spends quite a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, the Olivia Discourse and the Upper Room uh, Discourse and John uh, 13 to 17. Um, and, and all of them have a little bit of a future, a futuristic uh, look and tendency uh, to them. Uh, it's all kingdom talk, though. Uh, why do you feel it's important? if a believer wants to grow and follow Jesus, that they understand this concept of the kingdom? Well, they need to understand the concept of the kingdom and they need to understand where the kingdom's going. Mm-hmm. So, um, That's uh, a great point. you know, yeah. the kingdom, the kingdom has aspirations built into it in terms of where God is taking it. So for example, uh, the kingdom is made up of every tribe and every nation. Well, if it's made up of every tribe and every nation, all of whom share the same benefits in Christ, it might be worth it to get along with people from every tribe and every nation. <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's, that's just one example of how it works. And so, so it, it, gives us, it gives us the standard and the aspirations about what God is doing with us, where he's taking us, not just individually, but corporately. And so understanding what the kingdom is, how it works, how it's designed to work in the midst of the world and become a place of invitation to the world. Uh, we tend to reverse the assignment and try and make the world into the church. That's not happening. 
So you got to take people, uh, you go into the world and invite people into discipleship. Uh, And so the direction of the arrow is towards the church and what the church represents. And so uh, we we don't have any aspirations to take over the world. The world is already God's. And and people are accountable for how they respond to him. So so let the church be the church. Let the kingdom be the kingdom. Let, Let the king rule over his people. Remind people that everyone's accountable to the king, whether they recognize him or not. And uh, and then you you let the chips fall where they may. Dr. Bach, where do you see the continuity between um, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament or the Israel and the church, in other words? Well, the continuity that exists is, is coming through the covenant, covenant promises. Uh, the first covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, promises that God's going to make a people out of Abraham. He's going to give them a land. And then through that seed that comes through Abraham, ultimately the Christ, um, uh, the world is going to be blessed. But in the midst of making that promise about the Christ, he's also making a promise about forming a people mm-hmm. that he's going to kind of keep tabs on. And so so that's the first one. The second covenant is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And it is the declaration that through the dynasty of David will come the deliverance and the program that God is delivering. And then the third covenant is the new covenant, Jeremiah. And it is emphasizing the idea that that God is going to offer a program in which there's going to be forgiveness, and he's going to put the law inside of us, which Ezekiel expresses as with the picture of a watching, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. And so... um, so, so you have the promise of a people, you have a promise of a people that is eventually extended beyond Israel to all the nations because Christ died for all the world. You have a king who runs the kingdom, that's promised through the Davidic covenant, and what he's offering is forgiveness of sins and the ability to be correctly connected to God, which is something we lost with the fall. I like to tell people that when you talk about the gospel, you need to start in Genesis 1 and not in Genesis 3. Mm. Because Genesis 1 tells us who we are and who we're made to be. We're made in the image of God, male and female. We're made different from one another. At the same time, we're supposed to work and collaborate together and steward the creation well before God. We're designed to, to be, I, I, my joke is, we, we're designed to be hummers. We're designed to make the creation hum. <laughs> and so, so we're supposed to... We're supposed to work together in such a way and collaborate together that the creation functions smoothly, okay? We've turned the collaboration into a competition, and so it doesn't work smoothly. And sin gets in the way because we become selfish rather than thinking about our working side by side with one another. So the gospel's designed to relocate us back to that Genesis 1 space for what we were created to be, and it gives us location in a world in which there are lots of things going on and lots of ways people say to live in the world. They're looking for location. They don't know what to do, so they have to find themselves, Okay, which is a nice way to say, I'm going to end up being suspended in, in midair because I'm not going to get location without being located to the one who made it. And then we're off and running with the gospel. Mm. Dr. Bach, you, you've been uh, so gracious in helping me personally on my uh, latest book, Mountainside Discipleship. And what started as a request for a blurb <laughs> as, uh, has become an ongoing conversation and, and a heartfelt thanks on that. Um, but uh, let me ask you, why do you feel um, 
kingdom living, which is really being taught in Matthew 5 through 7, is so vital to today's individual that's trying to grow in discipleship? Well, uh, obviously, because it is the way of, um, one, being in touch with the one who made us, two, being connected to the program for which he made us, and three, it's the way in which he grows and develops us to be the people of God he, orig- people of God he originally created us to be. So it's kind of like getting in touch. If you want to get in touch with yourself, the best way to get in touch with yourself is to be in touch with God. Mm. And so, um, so, so kingdom living is about how to do that, how to do that well, how to live in a way that, uh, that not only uh, feeds the soul because it's in connection with the way we were made, but it also helps others to flourish and grow because you treat other people properly and you engage with them in the way, in a way that is, that is encouraging and edifying. And so kingdom living shows you how to do that. It helps you to avoid the variety of things that people stumble into that get them into trouble and that get societies into trouble. And so kingdom living is pretty important. And this fellowship with God that is a part of the Sermon on the Mount and the ethics of the kingdom is obviously uh, pretty important. It's also countercultural. You know, if we just absorb what's around us, we won't live as kingdom saints. So it ha- you have to be intentional about it. It's, this is Romans 12, 1 and 2, that you need to have your mind renewed on the basis of what it is that God is doing as opposed to the way you might live by default. And so, um, so being engaged with Scripture and what Scripture teaches, the way in which it says we're supposed to treat one another, the way we're supposed to think about others more important than ourselves, the way in which we engage with the great commandment to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, you know, all these things are designed to take the arrow that tends to point towards us and that the culture tends to shove towards pointing towards us and point that arrow out so that we engage and serve others and end up being connected to them as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, our church here, Dr. Bach in Miami, um, traditionally we were brought up, um, I would say more revised than classical dispensationalism, but um when it comes to the distinction between Israel and the church, we were taught there is a distinction, but I heard you say that um, the church is an extension of Israel. Is that better? Is it better to say that than saying a continuation of, of Israel? Well, you need, you need to distinguish there's both continuity and discontinuity with how the church relates to Israel. Mm -hmm. Anyone who is responsive to God and has embraced the message that he's given at the time, which he's given it, is, and responded in faith is part of the people of God. So we are one, you know, uh, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles in Christ, okay? So there is a Jewish contingent, there is an Israel contingent in the church. Uh, but having said that, the church is not Israel. The church, the Israel is a people among nations. Um, the church is a transnational structure that's also among the nations. But it's not it's not distinctly a nation. Mm-hmm. So there's so there's both similarity and difference in what the church is versus what Israel is. And God has a program for the church and what He's doing through Christ. But He also has a program for the nations and for the world and the creation that He's eventually going to redeem. And Israel's a part of that. So keeping Israel distinct from the church, at least to some degree, is important. The challenge of older dispensationalism was. It made it an absolute distinction right. in any and every area. 
And, and that became problematic when you think about the one people of God, that there's one people of God that we're all ultimately who we are and where we are because of Christ and what he's done. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a basis of unity that, that God gives us, whether we were saved ultimately in the Old Testament, in the New Testament period, or in the period to come. Yeah. And so we have to keep that continuity on the one hand, while at the same time recognizing the distinctions. The distinctions are the proof of the reconciliation. Mm. So I can't, if we're all the same, there's no reconciliation, there's no sense of reconciliation. But if we recognize that God has brought disparate and estranged groups together, then you have a sense of reconciliation, which is at the heart of what the Bible is doing. That's why Paul says we have a ministry of reconciliation. And in, in 2 Corinthians, when he says that, he's thinking about the horizontal re- or the vertical relationship to God. But in Ephesians 2, when he talks about that, he's talking about the horizontal relationship we have to one another. And mm-hmm. it's all connected. So the, the, the idea is, you know, there is that con- continuity, you know, where, as, as we're told in Scripture, that we are being grafted in. You know, the Lord has done this work through Israel, and we are being brought into this relationship. Yeah, that's of, you as a Gentile, yeah. okay? Yeah, I exactly, have, yeah. I yeah. happen to have a Jew- Jewish background. Okay, yeah. so I've been there all along. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, so, but the beauty is, these are strange people. I mean, if you know anything about the history between Gentiles and Jews, starting with Assyria in particular, or you can start with Egypt, but going with Egypt and then Assyria and then Babylon, and then a group that most people don't know about, the Maccabees and the pressure of the Seleucids on Israel, tried to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. It was the Holocaust before there was a Holocaust or an yeah. attempted one. Um, you'll understand that when God said, I want to form a group, a group of people, in which Gentiles and Jews are now going to be together, you now begin to appreciate how radical an idea that is and why that requires the spirit of God to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was little, uh, my, my background is we, we do have Greek in my background. My great grandfather came from Kefalonia. So whenever I would read that, you know, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. I was excited about that. I thought it was. There you go. Yeah, you, go. you were. I, I was, was first in line. You were second in yeah. line. And then there's everybody yeah. else. Everybody else yeah. falls after yeah. us, Dr. Bob. So your deportes pastor over there sitting next to you. Okay. He's, <laughs> a, he, he's behind you in the queue. <laughs> Yeah, Doctor Bach, the the phrase "the already not yet" that that could be a cuss word to some people, but um, <laughs> you know, so there's some people that want to um know what that means. How, how would you define? And I and I know you mentioned one time that if we could just look at our salvation, right? That could be the already. You know, we're justified, and you know, we're going to be glorified in the future. So, how else can you def- or you know give us an example of the already not yet? Well, you just you just gave what I think is one of the best ones, yeah. which is the picture of salvation. Yeah. So, so um, yeah. So if I ask you, are you saved? Um, there's an answer in which you will say, yes, I'm saved. I'm justified. I'm in the process of being sanctified. And then if I ask your spouse, is God done with you yet? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think she'll probably say no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and praise God, he's not done. Okay. <laughs> And, and so there's the idea that eventually we'll be perfected and glorified yeah. and our salvation will be full and cold, totally consummated in the future. So that's a picture of already not yet. Yes, I'm, God's already at work. I'm already his child. He's doing this shaping and forming this spiritual transformation that I'm in the midst of that we use this wonderful 
biblical word that no one ever uses otherwise, sanctification, to mm-hmm. describe, okay, I'm being sanctified by the work of the Spirit in my life, and hopefully that's changing me. But um, the bad news for my spouse is, is that it's a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, so you know, so what is that going to end up being? One day we'll be glorified. One day sin will be eradicated. One day it'll be all done. And I'd say the program for the world is no different than the program for us. God is at work in our midst. Uh, He has started something. The cross and the message of the cross has moved us from promise to an initial phase of fulfillment, but we're still waiting for the fulfillment to get fully filled. Yeah. And that's where we're headed. Would you say the same that for the Davidic covenant? I I think the progressive dispensation, they subscribe to that, right? That uh, David's sitting on the throne now, but in the future, he'll... It'll be um, con- um, consummated, right? Is that, is that what they Yeah, say? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. He is executing the benefits of salvation now, okay? Mm-hmm. You guys, and this is good news for you, you already got your salvation, okay? You've already been saved. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You aren't waiting for that in the future. And Jesus is the one who executed that. He executed that as the crucified Messiah. So he is at work in doing the things he's going to do but he hasn't done everything that he's going to do yet. And, and that when we await the rest of that, you know, um, Romans 8 says the creation groans until the completion of all things. And there's a lot of groaning going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, so, so that it's a very realistic theology in terms of uh, what we experience. Which that kind of takes away the the idea, and there's and we're not speaking bad about that, but like preterism that we're already in the kingdom, you know, is that Jesus is not physically sitting on the throne of David right now. You know, we're, we are not seeing the effects. I like what Dr. Evans says in that if we are in the kingdom at this very moment, then we must be in the ghetto side of the kingdom. <laughs> I <think> that <laughs> sums it well, up. well, the way, the way I want to think about that is, is that, is that we've inaugurated some of the benefits yeah. of the kingdom and the yeah. promise of the kingdom, but we aren't experiencing everything that the kingdom has to offer yet. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, I, so I, you know, I, I think we're in, I think we're in a, a refuge in the midst of a fallen world. Mm-hmm. So we're in a good place. Yeah, because we're uh, in, in one sense, you are in Christ, and we're on this journey to this aspiration that we were talking about. When one day, if I can say it this way, there's coming a day when borders between nations do not matter mm-hmm. because we will live at peace. Mm-hmm. And so I may be able to mark out, you know, I'm in Germany or I'm in Italy or I'm in Switzerland or I'm in uh, Saudi Arabia or whatever, but it's not going to matter because, in one sense, because we'll all be at peace with one another. You only need borders when you need protection mm. and when you need identity. Okay, Our identity will be in Christ. Uh, we may still have our sub-identities. In fact, I'm pretty sure we will because that shows the reconciliation. But we will also be at peace with one another. I, I make this comparison uh, that um, I, the first time I went to Europe and lived in Germany, was before the European Union had kind of fully established itself. So when I drove between Germany and France and I hit this railroad on the way to Strasbourg from Tübingen, I had to stop and talk to uh, an armed customs agent, you know, and show them my passport to reassure them that um, I was a tourist mm. and uh, and not a terrorist. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and so, you know, so I used to meet with them at, at the railroad tracks. Uh, the next time I went on sabbatical after the European Union established itself, um, 
there was no board guard there. There was no customs or anything. I just crossed the railroad tracks and went from Germany to France. And that was because this union had been established that had an element of, uh, of trust about it that said, if you're in any one of our countries, you can move freely uh, between the various borders that exist. And, and ultimately, that's what we're going to have. We're going to have a world in which we may have borders and distinctions, but in some senses, they're not going to matter in the way that they did when there was hostility. There was a time when if you crossed from Germany to France, you weren't just meeting a border guard and a customs agent. Yeah. Okay. You were meeting armies. Mm. And so, um, so yeah, so I, that's the way I like to picture it. Yeah. The pitchforks and plowshares for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how should um, the offer of a future kingdom reign um, kind of getting back into the, this kingdom idea, right? So, um, you know, we're talking about how, you know, there's this aspect of the future. Jesus is coming. Uh, wars will cease. So there's that peace between nations, right? Uh, because he's the ruler of all. Um, how should that kingdom, the, that future kingdom offer reign, uh, the future kingdom reign, excuse me, affect people today, right? So we've talked a well, little bit of one thing- five through seven. Now we're talking about, you know, the effect. For one thing, I don't need to be afraid of what's going on today. Mm. My identity is secure in Christ. My future is secure in Christ. I know who I am. I know I'm in God's hands. I know I'm in God's care. And so however God chooses to use me, you know, if I can steal from another context, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, Mm. okay? If God's behind it, I don't need to fear anything. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Peter 3. In the midst of the past, it says, but set Christ apart in your heart. Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. And right before that, it says, you may well get slandered for doing what's right. I call it box rule. Every good deed will get punished. <laughs> and so, so you may get slandered for doing what's right and living righteously. But the one thing you're not supposed to do is to be afraid. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're not supposed to, you're not to, you are to understand that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. Amen. And, and so I really think the church is struggling to understand that. And it's because I know where, what the kingdom is and where it's going and that the victory is secure and that death is a passage. Okay. It's not, it's not a roadblock um, because of all those things. I can live in the world differently than the nervousness that many people have living in the world because they don't know what their next moment means. Mm. Well said. Yeah. Dr. Buck, I heard you one time, I listened to you in another podcast and I think the question was something like, you know, we get us dispensations, we get labeled as, you know, we're always looking at the news, always reading the newspaper to see where the next prophecy is going to, is coming up or we use uh, newspaper exegesis and I heard you say something very that made me think it was it was awesome. And you said we should just stick to Acts one seven, right? It that for us to just let me read Acts one seven. He said to them, "It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by His own authority. We should be focused on. We shouldn't be focused on what's happening. You know, now we should be focused on what 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 the Lord is commissioning us to do." You, That's Acts one eight. So yeah. yeah. Right, so, yeah. So the point here is, the context is, the question is, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right. Little aside. 
little aside here for our non-dispensational friends. Um, <laughs> Jesus was with them for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, nothing had disabused them of the idea that the kingdom would be reconnected to Israel one day. And when they asked the question, Jesus didn't say, oh, man. I took you through the eschatology 101 class and you missed it. <laughs> I need to spend another 40 days with you guys so you get it right. He isn't saying the question is wrong. What he says is it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, okay, that are, that are, that are the Father's. He's basically saying this is the Father's business, not yours. Don't be overly preoccupied with it. Know that it's coming. Know that it means victory. But don't be overly preoccupied with it. Yes, keep watch about the fact that it might be coming, but we aren't supposed to try and figure it out. It's the father's business. Mm. In the meantime, you have this assignment. So I prefer to operate on the orders that I've been given rather than the orders that may be coming down the road. So the, so the assignment is um, that they were supposed to remain in Jerusalem and be clothed with enablement, with power from on high, with the Holy Spirit. And then they were supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Mm. Um, and that's the assignment. So I keep my eye on the thing that God has asked me to do. I let him mind his pay grade. He's much better at it than I am anyway. And, uh, and then we go from there. Amen. Yeah. Great. We, we got a, a, a question here. Um, John the Baptist said that he was preparing people for, you know, it's preparing for the kingdom, right? Preparing yeah. for Christ come. And when Jesus started his ministry, that change, that, that narrative shifted to the kingdom of God is at hand. Paul calls us ambassadors and Peter calls us aliens, right? We're sojourners. Uh, how does that narrative coincide with the Hebrews 11 teaching that the heroes of faith were looking toward this unshakable kingdom? Uh, in uh, in 11.6, it says that believers should... Um, believe that number one, God is God, right? And that he is a rewarder of, of this faith. So how do you see that narrative coinciding? It's uh, an already not yet uh, set of themes that the Bible is working with. So sometimes we're talking about the fact that the beginning of the kingdom has come, that it's been inaugurated, that the, that the train in one sense is pulled out of the station. You need to be sure you're on it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the train has not arrived to where the train is going yet. And so we're looking forward to that at the same time. Yes, there are texts that says the kingdom is at hand, because when John the Baptist was speaking, Jesus hadn't shown up yet. Okay, But once Jesus shows up, Jesus says things like, um, if I cast out demons by the, by the finger of God or the spirit of God, depending on which gospel you're in, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's kind of like overtake. Um, yeah, that means the shadow is in your midst. And in fact, in another text, Jesus said, you don't need to go looking for him here or there because the kingdom of God is in your midst, which is a way of saying, I'm here, the kingdom's here. Where the king is, is where the kingdom is. Yeah. And so, um, so in that sense, it's already here, but there are things that the king is going to deliver that he hasn't delivered yet. So we've got that dimension of it. So depending on what passage we're in in the Bible, sometimes we're talking about the kingdom as it is, and we're talking about the kingdom as it will be. Sometimes instead of already not yet, it's expressed as now and not yet. So um, that's the kind of idea that sometimes you're doing. So whenever you get a kingdom passage, you got to ask yourself, is this the kingdom as a whole, 
is this the beginning of the kingdom, the now part, or is it the not yet part that we're looking at? Because mm. in different passages, it'll switch. Mm. You know, when I'm studying Luke's or Acts, I always go to Dr. Bach's commentaries or his books, wherever uh, I have in, in my library. And I know you know a lot about um, Luke. So I'm that's a wild guess. Is that a wild guess? Uh, 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 <laughs> I, I've, I've spent more. I've spent more than a day in Luke. <laughs> so this is good. I know Origen said one time that once we get to heaven, we'll know who the author of Hebrews is. But do you see Luke maybe being the author of Hebrews in your opinion? Oh, that you know, that's actually not a bad suggestion. When I really want to upset people, I'll tell people Priscilla was the author. Of <laughs> uh, but uh, but anyway, um, you know, I you know only God knows who wrote Hebrews. Um, but whoever it was, they did us a favor because they were showing Christianity's relationship to Judaism on the one hand and Christianity's participation in the promise on the other. It really is an expanded exposition of some themes out of Psalm 110. That's really what it is. It's an extended sermon in Psalm 110 and the Messianic promises that you see in chapter one are what are expounded in the rest of the book. And so it's a real gift to us. Uh, I wish it had come, you know, with the package wrapped and said to the church from and then the name. Yeah, okay? yeah. But we didn't get that. I think the old Schofield Bible did something like that. They they put um, Paul as the author of Hebrews. Yeah. Well, the that's the traditional association is to associate it with Paul. But yeah. I, I just think it's different enough that he probably is not the one who wrote it. But it's conceivable it's written by someone who knew a lot about what Paul taught. But I just it is not in the Pauline style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I traditionally have not taken the Pauline stance. I, I always tell John that I think it might have been a polis if anybody yeah. that was associated. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't want John to sleep tonight. So it's yeah. Priscilla. <laughs> yeah. So it's Priscilla. We're taking that. Okay. Um, now, shifting to, uh, you know, what you do at DTS and just DTS, they take this big stand that, you know, uh, all 66 books of the Bible, right? Um, yeah. And so, why do you feel it's important for believers to study? the entire Bible, because I think there's this, uh, this weird, um, stance out there of that people go with is, um, you know, old Testament, you know, I'm just going to focus on new Testament. Mm. Um, I've even heard people say, well, if it's not written in red, I'm not going to read it. Right. Um, so they're only going to stick to, you know, Jesus's words, but why do you think it's important for believers to look at the Bible in its entirety and study it in its entirety? Well, if a narrative is like a road or a highway, okay, no one likes to drive on a highway and then have holes in the highway. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, it gets, gets rough and messy if you do that. So if I want to know the story, I want to know the connections between the story. I want to know how the story unfolds. I want to know all the elements that are brought into the story. When I come into the New Testament, there's a lot of Old Testament background and backdrop that comes into what's going on in the New Testament. If I really want to be uh, aware of what's going on, then I want to read the whole. It's a little bit, I sometimes make this distinction. I usually make it when I'm talking about the difference between studying the languages and working in an English translation. But it's a matter of pixelation, okay? The, the more the familiar you are with the whole of the Bible, the better the image, mm-hmm. the more pixelation in the image. And you understand the use and the colors. You don't just get the outlines, but you actually see the connection. 
So um, I'm going to drive back from Houston to Dallas tomorrow, and I'm glad all the highway is paid. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're proud dispensation is here at our, at our church yes. here, Dr. Bach. Yes. And um, just it, it feels like Reformed theology has taken over for some reason, especially down here in Miami. Right, Cody? We, yeah. It's, you know, yeah. We're like the only... Yeah. We're probably the only dispensational church here in Miami. Maybe I'm not sure yet. Other than yeah, it's, it's the the Hispanic churches tend yeah to, yeah more charismatic yeah. dispensation. But but the question is, Doctor Bach, um, in your opinion, is is dispensation growing or fading? In your opinion, well, uh, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I do think there's no doubt that the Reformed tradition is is uh, much more prevalent than it was, and and frankly, there are some things in the Reformed tradition that are worth celebrating. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it, it is a product of the Reformation. It, it has had a very strong stance on the character of God and on the program and plan of God, those kinds of themes. The place where it is weak is in putting the national level of the plans together, being sensitive to the, if I can say this, the diversity makeup of the people of God and incorporating that in a healthy way. And so it tends to be corporate and holistic without seeing the elements of reconciliation that are a part of the story that make it beautiful. Mm. And so, um, so that's where I tend to tend to think it's a little weak. It is very focused on who Christ is and what he's done. That's a good thing. But Christ himself is the one who said there's a future for Israel, you know, I clear your house desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm. And the followers of Jesus are the ones who kept the hope up for Israel because Peter says, heaven holds the Messiah until he returns uh, to the times of restoration, which you can read about in the prophets of old. That's Acts 3. Or Romans 9 to 11, Paul comes around and says, you know, there were natural branches that were cut off and you that were unnatural branches have been grafted in. So it wouldn't be a hard thing for God to graft in back the natural branches. And that's what he's holding out hope for in Romans 11. And he says, in this way, all Israel is going to be saved. And Israel in that passage is not about anyone who believes in God. Israel in that passage is about the Israel that currently is not believing. Mm, yeah. And yeah. So, um, so all of that is, is a way of saying even the fulfiller and their emphasis about Christ is the fulfillment of everything, even the fulfiller declared the hope for Israel, which means that, um, that Jesus was both a stealth reformer and an open dispensationalist. <laughs> yeah, it just seems it makes it kind of hard once you get to the book of Revelation. And after the first few chapters, all of a sudden there's this insert of Israel once again. And this this the work is continuing once again in what looks like the Daniel uh 70th week right it's that it's a yeah, final, exactly. final idea of yeah. oh guess what and get, i'm doing this completion now and i'm working and, and, with israel and peter in acts 3 basically says if you want to read about what's associated with jesus return just turn to your hebrew scripture just turn to your yeah. old testament mm. okay and he doesn't say and oh by the way here's the sheet that goes alongside it so you can understand <laughs> what it's saying yeah no just read it as it is yeah. How about um, aside from your books, Dr. Bach, who would you who would you um, say, you know, upcoming dispensational scholars or theologians that you recommend? Michael Vlach is uh, very good in this area. Michael Rydelnik writes in this area. Um, we might have a touch of different emphasis uh, in terms of uh, 
in terms of some of the themes that are conversations that happen within dispensationalism, but they do uh, good work. There's some work that's been done by Glenn Kreider and Michael Spiegel in this area. Uh, uh, that they're very, very good. Uh, Jeff Bingham has written, a, there's a book that, uh, that uh, Kreider and Bingham edited on dispensationalism that's a good update. So those certainly are, are good works. The works, if you want to hear the internal dispensational discussion, the works edited by Herb Bateman, he did work on, uh, I think, uh, three topics in contemporary dispensationalism that were that was a, a very good conversation amongst dispensationalists of different persuasions about what's going on internally in the conversations among dispensationalists. Yeah, yeah I read that. You need to see a, a four views on dispensationalism. I know they did the one on the millennium, but on dispensationalism, because there's, you know, there's a lot of views and there's a lot of, you know, different uh, ideas that are out there. It'd be neat to see something like that take place. Well, there actually is a four views book. It's not a dispensationalism, but of covenant theology and dispensationalism, mm -hmm. which has two covenantal views and two dispensational views, and they're all interacting with each other. Yeah. I read the Herb Bateman book and I think you're, um, you're with, you're going, um, I don't know if you're debating against uh, Elliot Johnson. Is that correct? That's correct. One chapter, it's in, well, and actually in two chapters, I'm interacting with. I graded for Elliot Johnson when I was a student, right? Okay, and so I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still having conversations with him about that experience. And so, uh, um, so uh, yeah, we're actually personally very, very good friends, but we inter we think differently about dispensationalism, so yeah. we've written about it in spots. How about the Feinberg book? Um, What's it called? Discontinuity and continuity. Yeah, that's a good that's a good overview of some of the issues that that dispensationalists are dealing with. You know, in the in the late eighties and nineties, there were a series of books that were designed to to say to older forms of dispensationalism, there may be a better way to express our theology mm -hmm. and uh, and to bring some elements of continuity in it that the New Testament seems to reflect, and so. Um, the continuity discontinuity book was kind of one of the first voices into that space that the Feinbergs put together. And uh, that certainly was a part. And then uh, one name that I didn't mention before that should be mentioned now is Robert Sosi also came along and did some writing on progressive dispensations alongside Craig Glazing and myself, separate volume all by himself. And we're tracking very much in, down similar lines in terms of now, not yet the continuity with the Old Testament, those kinds of themes. Because dispensationalism historically had been a discontinuous theology. Mm. This current era is not like the old one. The kingdom was offered and withdrawn, you know, and was put in suspension until the millennium comes. That's the older form of dispensationalism. Now, we argue now that it's an already not yet. It's coming whether people recognize it or not. You're accountable to it whether you recognize it or not, etc. So, um, so it introduced the now not yet element into dispensational to get that continuity alongside the discontinuity. Mm. So the Feinberg volume uh, raised those themes and kind of put them on the map for attention. And then, and then we came along. It's like, it's like, am I going to slip on a shoe or does the shoe have laces that need to be tied up? <laughs> so we put on, we put on our lace shoes to finish the job. Uh, let me ask, uh, you know, we were talking a lot about this idea of kingdom dispensationalism. Um, what 
got you into that area of study? You know, was there an individual, a book, something that, you know, other than scripture, let me just put it that way, you know, because scripture speaks a lot into it, but that just kind of piqued your interest and said, man, I really need to dive into this more. Well, what happened is I ended up going to Dallas for my, for my uh, seminary degree, you know, and it was wearing the dispensational uh, label, union label, proud and, <laughs> and loud. And, but I had friends who were from other traditions who I also was interacting with. And when I went to do doctoral studies in Scotland, I was interacting with them as well. And uh, so, you know, so that caused me to sit down and say, all right, what's going on here? Uh, and, and doing so, I handed out my copy of Dispensational Today by Charles Ryrie to, a, to two historic premillennial students I was doing doctoral studies with. And we used to have lunch. Um, on a regular basis, and we discover a chapter at a time, and they marked up my book, I still have it, uh, with their questions. And so that, that really pulled me into the conversation. And it just so happened, I didn't know Craig Blazing when we were both students at Dallas, because he was two years ahead of me. But, uh, but we were at Aberdeen at the same time. Mm. And so he was working theologically on other things, but dispensationalism was a part of it, what he was uh, wrestling with. And I was wrestling with the same thing. He was wrestling with it from a theological perspective. I was wrestling with it in an exegetical perspective out of the Gospels, because most dispensationalists don't spend a lot of time in the Gospels. They, they tend to major in Paul. Yeah. And so, um, uh, or if they pick up a Gospel, it's, it's Matthew. They certainly don't spend much time in Luke. And Luke is the Gospel writer who discusses continuity as much as any of the Gospel writers do. And so... So there were elements that, as I was doing my work, I sensed, well, dispensationalism really doesn't talk about this, and here it is. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? And so we went about the work of trying to uh, put it into some kind of a coherent package. Did you uh, ever have um, uh, two saint for any of your classes when you were I there? Had I, saint. I was just I had, a, I, had a, I had a ton of two saint. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. No, he, he, I, I used to tease him. Uh, and, and, and the way I teased him was, um, when I came back from Aberdeen, I was known as an evangelical who was working in redaction criticism and redaction criticism in the gospels was a controversial, critical approach. Um, when I came back from, from my work in Aberdeen and I used to tease him that I learned redaction criticism from him because <laughs> when I was, because when I was sitting in the Luke class. And he went through the passage about Jesus preaching in the synagogue in his hometown, mm. you know, uh, that, that he pointed out how Luke 4 was different from the versions in Matthew and in Mark. Mm. And I'm going, that's redaction. You know, mm. there was redaction stuff going on. So I want to thank you for making me a redaction critic. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, so, you know, and he's just such a dear man. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, but I, I took several classes from him, and he just was a great Bible teacher, wonderful heart, uh, total pastor, cared about people, just a, just a wonderful. For years, he ended up being a wonderful colleague. Mm -hmm. I got time for one more question. Yeah, let's go. All right. Heading back to the, the Davidic covenant, Dr. Bach. Um, just to read. Two saying to David. What is <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to be able to transform through. Yeah. yeah you could have gone from Pentecost to David. <laughs> so, that's, you know, that would have been a little more biblical. But anyway, go ahead. I got this question in my, my notes here. I, I, I thought I wasn't going to be able to 
to to say, but I'm thank God I'm I'm gonna say it now. But um, uh, the Davidic Covenant. Um, how would you refute people? Because you know the classical and the revised will always say the the Davidic throne. The references to the Davidic throne in the Bible are always earthly, never heavenly. How how would you um you know refute that or how well, well, how would you yeah go ahead. There, there are a variety of reputations. First of all, if you look at the geography of Jerusalem uh, in the first century, if you go to the Shrine of the Book today where the Dead Sea Scrolls are housed, there's a huge map in Jerusalem of first century, a depiction of first century Jerusalem. You've got the Shekinah facing the Mount of Olives. And then to the right of the Shekinah, to the right hand of the Shekinah, is the city of David. Mm. So the geography of Jerusalem is picturing this earthly connection between the king and God. But we're also told that earthly things are a picture of what? Heavenly, Heavenly things. Wow. Look at that. Okay. That's, mm. that's, that's in Hebrews. So mm. when Jesus says he's going to the right hand of the Father, and, it, it, and when Peter argues in Acts 2, that Israel can know that Jesus is the Messiah because he's been raised from the dead, okay, that, that is a fulfillment of a promise about the Davidic line. In fact, there's an allusion to Psalm 132 in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Acts 2 where it talks about an oath that he swore to David, you know, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, okay? And every other passage in that text, Joel Psalm 16, Psalm 110, it's fulfilled by something that had happened. All right? So I tell people, I've got a piece of bread on the top. I've got a piece of bread on the bottom. I've got a meat in the sandwich. I've got the tomatoes in the sandwich. If the bread, the tomatoes, and the bottom piece of bread are talking about things that are fulfilled now, then maybe the meat in the middle of the sandwich is talking about something that's fulfilled now. Wow. And so... Uh, and, and so it's all seen as a pattern because Israel's supposed to understand that God has made this one both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. And the proof is in the promise and what it offers. Jesus seating at the being seated at the right hand of God, because the right hand of God in heaven is nothing but an extended picture of what he designed to be on earth. Wow. So we're off and running. The gun has gone off. Okay. The kingdom is inaugurated. But there's more to come. So I tell people, the traditional dispensationalists, your idea that the kingdom is ultimately earthly and will show itself on the earth is completely right. Okay? Just don't leave out anything in between. Mm -hmm. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that kind of goes in where, uh, you know, we're crying out Maranatha. We want that here right now. You know, you know, there's one other, there's one other point, And that is that sometimes the point is made that David's throne is an earthly throne, but the Lord's throne is a heavenly throne. Right. Mm. We hear but there's a, a problem with that mm. because in, in first Chronicle, I think it's first Chronicle 29, the saw the saw the throne that Solomon is said to sit on is the Lord's throne, not David's throne. Oh, wow. You said First Chronicles twenty nine. I think it's First Chronicles twenty nine twenty three. I made. I think that's right. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king, instead of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. Okay, that's supposed to be a heavenly throne. If that's the case, then Solomon's enthronement really involved an exaltation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. Wow. That's great. Thank you, man. I got to write that down. (laughs) (laughs) Cause you hear that and you hear that a lot, especially from the, you know, the older guys. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. in, In fairness, they're trying to preserve something that has tended to get swallowed up in the conversation. And that is the loss of Israel and the loss of hope tied to the, this earth in relationship to Israel. So I get what motivates it. Yeah. But it, but and sometimes what we do in our theology is we make something an either or that's a both and, and in the process in, in making it an either or and choosing one of the pieces, we have a piece go missing that shouldn't go missing. Could couldn't we just say? Um, that dispensationalism is really a continuation of the Reformation then if we're looking at it because we are continually reforming our our look and study into Scripture. And well, I'll credit you for, for, for bringing dispensationalists alongside the Reformers <laughs> as an extension of the Reformation, and uh, that's really cool. So, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Buck, uh, I want to go ahead and say a big thank you for coming on and joining us. Uh, It has been a pleasure and it's been great. I want to be courteous of your time with us because, uh, you know, we know you're a busy man. Um, So we just want to go ahead and give a big thank you and uh, a shout out to you. Any upcoming projects you're working on? Yeah, I'm working. I'm working on several things. I've got a commentary on Matthew that's waiting for it's tied to someone who's going to preach messages based on the exegesis. So I'm waiting for someone to finish that. And then I've got three books related to the church's uh, approach to race and racial issues oh, wow. that I'm, that I'm planning. It's probably the next five years of my life. And uh, assuming I live that long and, uh, and I, I really, I really want to plead with the church to think seriously about how, how the way we handle race is an opportunity to put out a rich testimony for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Because it's just so in contrast with the way the rest of the world handles faith. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Bach, uh, thank you once again. Thank you. And we look forward to uh, reading and hearing more from you in the future. Well, um, and it's been great to be with you guys. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess I should have sympathy that you live in Miami. What a what a what a terrible place to, have to live. And I mean, you know, uh, you know, you have to dodge hurricanes every now and then. You know, it's a hard life. But uh, anyway, I wish you all the best there in Florida. <laughs> Thank you. I guess it's uh, commiserating because you, you guys in in Texas and DTS in area, Texas we get it too. We just shoot at yeah. the hurricane. That's all. Yeah, exactly. You guys get the heat. You guys get the humidity. You guys get the hurricanes yeah. every once in a while. You know why there are so many Christians in Texas? Because it's so hot here that we understand the concept of Haiti. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. God bless you, brother. Thank you, Doctor. All right, tell you anything. You're very welcome. Bye. Thank you for joining the Transform 365 podcast, a ministry dedicated to helping you grow in relationship to Christ. If you want to know more, find us at transform365.com or on our church website, www.swcc.org, located in Miami, Florida. Until next time, remember, the only work in grace is to let grace work in you. God bless.